and this is Property Matters, a weekly catch-up on all matters property, supported by Fairview International Property Consultancy and auctionproperty.co.uk. And we're live every Sunday from 10am on YouTube, Facebook, and on our website, propertymatterstv.co.uk. And if you're watching on our website, we'd love it if you'd hit the Google review button and give us a review uh, whenever you're next on the site. Please also get involved by giving us your comments in the comments section. And if you'd like to email, it's hello at propertymatterstv.co.uk. Property Matters is also available as a podcast on our website and via the biggest podcast platforms available every Monday at 10 a.m. And from today, I believe we're also um, available on radio, but we'll find out more about that in just a second with Joe. Uh, so let's talk to Joe. What's all this about a brand new radio station, Joe? Yes, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning to our viewers. And of course, hopefully now our listeners as well on DilseyRadio.com. It's an online radio platform, which uh, we've uh, just gone live on and uh, Property Matters will be there um, 10 o'clock every Sunday morning. So you can uh, have um, many, many different types of doses of us. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube, Facebook, uh, radio and of course here with our smiley faces on a Sunday morning so uh, yeah it, it, exciting new uh, new project just really to make sure that we are delivering the messages of all matters property wherever and however we can so let's get into our first story of the day then. Um, this is uh, MPs urging the government to action on leaseholds and managing agents. Now I thought, oh, goodness, now here we go again, bashing at the property industry. But actually, some of the stories in here that are being debated, this was quite a big debate last week in the Commons. So a number of MPs have called on the government to urgently look at the leasehold reform, and also in particular with review to uh, managing agents um, and, and focusing on those service charges. So Barry Gardner, who's the Labour MP for Brent North, said in a debate about leasehold and managing agents, he said that there was a compelling case for wholesale reform. Millions of people in the country are having to reassess their lives, he says, and the possibilities that they thought were open to them, even on changing jobs, trapped in their own homes, they're unable to sell, unable to move to a new job, or trapped in a one-bedroom home and they want to have more children, that kind of thing. He said that he wanted the case for an increase in service charges to be included in any reform, with one participant in the debate noting that there had been in one instance a 3,000% increase in service charges in one case. He said, I'm glad that the minister has agreed to take up the case and look into it further because it is astonishing what's going on. Following up on the scandal of managing agents often being at the centre of a web of companies all linked to the same beneficial owners. So we'll come on to that in just a second. But he talks about uh, in Wembley Central apartments in his constituency. It's one of joint developers sold to a Canadian company which then sold back to Wembley Central, but their Jersey version. So they claim that what they're doing is um, getting these charges for all the remedial work that's required, and yet the original freeholder is now also the leaseholder. So there's some skullduggery going on, and obviously, you know, if we're seeing cases of 3,000% increase, Joe, something should be looked at. Absolutely. Um, yes, yeah, great subject we uh, brought to, to Property Matters, and of course, I'm glad it's been uh, highlighted um, in the government. Um, the thing with service charges, Paul, is fundamentally, it's a little bit of a hidden extra, as I would really say. So what happens is that uh, when somebody takes out a new lease or a takes over a property um, on a lease, and that also depends on the type of property. So 
anything like um, freehold uh, where they have a long 999 year lease like the peppercorn rent the chances are there are probably no service charges if you are a masonette with your own front door um, the chances are there are probably no um, service charges you may have a common um, insurance policy buildings insurance policy uh, with upstairs and downstairs to protect yourself but because you have your own front doors fundamentally there is no common area as such to maintain and therefore there shouldn't be any service charges or maintenances what there might be are if they've given it to a management agent that management agent may um, keep a log of uh, the, the 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 rate the rates of the rent that is new and the rent is due to the freeholder which is normally quite an, a nominal amount and in that they might add some service charges where it really affects people is when you've got these new modern blocks of blocks of flats um, because nobody is actually um, then in charge of the serviced area the communal areas the gardens the exteriors etc etc because obviously if you've got 30 people in a block then you know, not one person is going to be responsible or someone has to take on. So then the freeholders uh, may appoint a management company and that management company theoretically becomes responsible for um, the service element, i.e. the common areas, the lighting, um, the cleaning, etc., etc. And that is the hidden extra, if you like to call it that, because what they do is they will end up saying, oh, well, we actually employed a cleaning company and we charged X, Y, Z, and that is then costed out to the individuals and nobody really has a uh, real sort of hold on that situation. So it could be uh, as little as, you know, 30 pounds a month, and it could be as much as 300 pounds a month or more, as the, uh, the chap says, he's, he's gone up by 300 times. Um, then the other aspect of that, of course, is that, you know, people don't keep a log. Um, so they don't keep a log of all of the invoices and stories that they get. So what happens is that uh, each time uh, they want to sell their property, they have to go back to the service uh, management company and for that they will charge a uh, administration fee. So there's all these little, little bits that gets added on, um, which then make it un unviable. The, the biggest problem has been the latter, I suppose the last 15, 20, 20 years worth of buildings. The service charges have been astronomical. The ground rents have been uh, incremental where they say, okay, for the first five or 10 or 15 years, it'll be, you know, 250 pounds. Then it goes whacking up to another, another three. So it becomes really uh, a hidden expense. And given the time that we are going through at this moment in time with uh, cost of living and all sorts of other things going up, you know, these little other charges that come in uh, only um, add insult to injury. So forgive me, is there a difference then between a managing agent or a letting and a letting agent? Are they essentially the same thing or are they different? Okay, so um, the letting agent is the agent that is actually doing the rental of the property. In other words, you are the owner and you decided to rent the property out and you're going to appoint a letting agent to let your property out. The managing agent, the managing agent is the managing agent that manages the whole block on behalf of the freeholder. So um, they are a separate entity to the letting agent. Now, some letting agents may also be the managing agents, but that's because they've been managing the block. And some of the landlords in those properties have chosen the same agent, perhaps to rent the property out for them. So they may say they manage it and they let it. They run the two entities separately. So, but there are, that, that is the distinct difference. Um, sometimes you'll see uh, a sign saying let and managed 
um, by XYZ. Let and managed means that they have rented the property out and they're managing that property, the rental aspect of it only, right, for the landlord that they have rented the property out. Very confusing, but hopefully that's clarified that point. Yes, it's, it's, un it's unbelievable. Actually, the government were given a full report on this in 2019 and the recommendations were made then. Um, and presumably all of this obviously comes off the back of the whole Grenfell and safety thing because clearly a lot of these charges I think are, you know, whether they're legitimate charges or trumped up because of that as a reasonable excuse. I suppose the government could say, well, we did have a pandemic to deal with in the meantime since 2019, but they, they do have some so-called blood on their hands really in a way because they've done absolutely nothing despite the report in 2019. Yes and no. I think, you know, uh, I, I always think that sometimes we point at the government uh, or any government primarily because that's who we find that, you know, if we point at them, they'll, they'll take it up and start doing something. But fundamentally, this is this is the management company. These are the freeholders that build these properties and then set out the new leases. And in those leases, they decide at that time that there are these um, add-ons that can be added in the lease. Um, they are not government responsibilities at that time. It's it's a bit like so to, to be you know a layman in this. It's like you're the guy who's built it, and you're then going to send sell the, all of the properties, and you're going to sell them all out on a 125, uh, maybe 199, whatever lease lease that is going to be uh, governed. You're the one as the landlord, the freeholder, the developer, the builder who's actually set out the tone of what that lease is going to be. Uh, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the government. Now, the problem with the government situation is that when landlords then sell their asset off, which they do, they'll sell that because there is a value in the aspect of the freehold. It's a bit like the man from the Prue situation, and obviously insurance companies are now people that tend to look at these things. It's a drip, drip process. So for the next nine 125 years or 999 whatever they they're going to get this drip drip feed of 20 30 40 50 300 pounds a month coming in from the people that have taken the lease in the first place um and that then becomes a um a, an asset that they think well okay if we put that and multiply that over the next 30 years it's worth xyz to us um and so i don't believe that that situation's got anything to do with the government. Where the government get involved is when they haven't policed or, or helped the situation or um, worked out why such astronomical charges. If the charges are uh, definable, fine. If they are not, and then you have a situation like the Glenfield Tower scenario, then of course, it always rolls back and says, actually, why wasn't this protected? Well, it's the freeholders that would have been now. In the case of Glenfield, the freeholder was the council. Um, the council built those black blocks. So it was the council. So that's why it's ended up at the government's doorstep, because theoretically they were the owners of it. But there are a lot of people that are just private owners um, that have these new leases that have been is issued out. And so it's not always the government's fault.
Yeah, so so they're basically saying that uh, the gap is, is long overdue now. But I think there was a case at the time where the gov- the, the uh, managing agents were saying, well, look, just leave it to us. We'll police it ourselves. The usual thing. I remember back in the days of the whole press complaints and all the rest of it. No, we'll, we'll manage ourselves. Of course, it never, ever is tough enough. There's never enough teeth in what they do because they don't want to be held to, to too much account, I guess. And uh, that's human nature, perhaps, many, in many cases. But here, um, it's definitely the, uh, the case that... The, well, there's some pretty strong words here. The government's failure to act on recommendations that has had a really, uh, very real consequences. The burdens that homeowners have long laboured under because of this dysfunction of the property agent market and inherent flaws in the leasehold system have become more acute over recent years as the result of building safety crises and urging um, surging inflation. Many people, many leaseholders are on the brink of financial ruin, said Mr. Pennycook. So it's 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 fairly strong stuff. And, and I think that from what I'm reading here, the sense seems to be a sense that actually, do you know what? Yeah, we better get on with this. Yes, I think, you know, like I said, the distinction is is between what is owned by the government or the, or the housing association or social housing availability. Those are the ones that obviously, you know, go back and fall back into the government's section because theoretically they are state-owned inverted comma properties in some shape or form and if it's a housing association which has been funded by government funding theoretically is the government that does it what i'm saying is to be clearly distinctive is that you know there are blocks that are built by and held uh, as freehold by private developers for example take take one of the larger i don't know um take bovis homes for argument's sake or something like that they might have built a whole estate and in that estate they've got several blocks which they have now um, sold off and they are perhaps the, the freeholders. So, you know, as big developers, uh, obligation falls on, on their shoulders to make sure that they maintain. Equally, just like big developers, there are what we call just ordinary developers who may have built block and, and so forth. So there's, yeah, there is a lot of things that go on in, in the freehold, leasehold aspect. And there's no question that they need to um, address that issue um, and make it tidier, perhaps a bit more simpler. Yeah, Mr Gove has said this week that he will introduce leasehold reform in the next parliamentary session. So I suppose for those that are on the brink of ruin at the moment, that's not particularly good news. That's a good few years away, perhaps, but um, at least something's going to be happening about it, I guess. Yes, I mean, it's a case of, um, you know, they, they, they've brought it there. Glenfield actually highlighted that situation. Gobi's obviously going to go and do his bit. It will take a bit of time. And in the meantime, there are a lot of people that are stuck in that scenario for a number of reasons. One is perhaps they've now got a, a short lease um, and they've got to go back to the freeholder and negotiate that lease. Um, and that could be quite a lot of money. So that means that sometimes people can't afford to do that. They are then having to sell perhaps at a, a lower price so that somebody else can buy it. Um, there are people that have got mortgages um, on those properties and now can't sell primarily because the lease is too short. Um, so there's all sorts of barrage of reasons why people are stuck in these scenarios, especially if they want to have a growing family and they're in a one bedroom property and the next thing they want to do is go to two or three bedroom houses and they just simply can't make that shift. Um, that's not going to get solved overnight. That's a long overdue situation. But what they can do is going forward is tidy up the new leases, which they have been doing. I think the new leases on new development has to be pretty much a uh, 900 odd year lease uh, with a peppercorn rent and perhaps even the share of the freehold so that the owners 
are actually in charge of their destiny going forward, uh, which that has not been the case. So yes, it will be some years before we get that actually uh, into some shape. Here's another thing that's uh, new to me this week. Um, buy to let landlords welcome landmark ruling from the Supreme Court. Caught my eye, not surprisingly. The National Residence, Residential Landlords Association has welcomed a landmark ruling from the Supreme Court which provides vital clarification about the responsibilities of so-called rent-to-rent companies. Now, do you want to explain to us what rent-to-rent companies are? Because that's a new one on me. So basically, uh, rent-to-rent companies are a middleman between the actual original um, owner of the property, the landlord, um, and perhaps the tenant. So in some cases, what happens is that they call it like a guaranteed rent. So let's say um, a managing agent uh, decides that he can um, probably rent this out um, much more regularly with no void period. Um, he has to guarantee the rent to the landlord, that, that, that rent may be slightly lesser than the market value in order to give them the comfort that when they are renting out and if they are in a void period at any time, they can cover the cost. But it also um, takes the responsibility um, away from the landlord to deal with um, all the um, maintenance issues, all the updating and so forth. So it's like a middle lease, a sub-lease you could probably call it a sublet if you want to if you want to use another word for it but it's a sub situation so let's say to give an example let's say you're the landlord and I then take a lease from you for the next five years three years and that lease would be to say that I can get on with it basically do whatever I feel fit as long as you get your um, rent without fail month in month out you are then Avoid of any responsibilities of maintaining and dealing with that. That becomes my issue. I become the rent to rent. So I've, I've rented it from you. I then now rent it forward out to the, the ultimate tenant. Um, and so in theory, become responsible for that property. The gap in the earnings is probably my gain. Um, and the, your gain is that you are now void of all headaches. Um, and so that's the rent to rent scenario. It's a, it's a sublet situation that happens, happens a lot, happens to scenarios where basically landlords might be abroad, um, don't have the uh, withal and the facilities to handle the maintenance, the leaky tap job, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they'll give that to um, a letting agent. So the letting agent then might say to them, well, actually we offer you another package and that package is that we take it off of you and then we manage it. So what was interesting in this case, uh, Joe, this is the case of Rackerson against Jepson, um, because what had happened was the landlord, Rackerson, had agreed to let a flat to a rent-to-rent -rent company. The property required a licence, but the company didn't apply for one. The tenant, clearly very smart, as a result of the failure to be licensed, the former tenant um, of the flat sought a rent repayment order against Rackerson rather than the rent-to-rent -rent company, even though he had not received the rent directly from the tenants. So rent-to-rent -rent companies obviously take over the running of the property for the landlord. In an initial tribunal, it was ruled that the rent repayment order could be applied against Rackerson. The Court of Appeal, however, later overturned the decision and ruled in Rackerson's favour, which makes a lot of sense, really, because at the end of the day, what, what uh, responsibilities are there for the rent-to-rent -rent company if the landlord takes all the, all the, all the flack? Absolutely. And I think that that is a very clear um, landmark um, 
uh, ruling that has happened. Um, I suppose there was a bit of a loophole here and that, that loophole has been closed. And the reality is that if the um, rent to rent agent or the, uh, the person is getting the benefit of the income, they should also have to deal with all of the things. And that's really what they do promise. Uh, if you were a rent, if you were a landlord and you took a guaranteed rent, you're, what you're saying is, you know, here I am signing my property at a given guaranteed rent to me, but no headaches, which means that the agent should have taken all the precautions correctly. If it's a multiple occupancy or a, a, a housing for multiple occupancy or any other form of letting that they were doing, they would and should have applied for the appropriate um, uh, licenses from the council in order to make sure and then of course uh, made sure that the building was uh, up to standard to comply with those particular things and that normally means quite a lot of investment and that's part of the reason why they may have sort of taken a risk and said okay well we'll try not to do this you know keep it under the under the radar etc etc primarily because it means that you know they might have to invest uh, in fire doors etc you know all the other stuff that um, on a multiple occupancy that you would have to do so um, it's a good ruling for landlords to know that and it also clearly uh, clears up the situation for any rent-to-rent -rent, um, scenario so that they know that you know, the full responsibility lies with the agent. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem uh, strange, doesn't it, that actually, you know, you, 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 the rent-to-rent -rent company would have put a contract together with the tenant, um, which is a legal document. They would have charged the rent they wanted to charge. They actually paid the money to the rent-to-rent -rent company, so there was no existing contract as such between the, the owner and, and the tenant so how can they just walk away from from the legal documentation i suppose their argument perhaps in court was that uh, actually you know the landlord should have let us know we needed a license perhaps or shouldn't have even let it to us without having got a license or made us aware of it maybe that was their argument perhaps what do you think Yes, I mean, of course, they were looking for a loophole, weren't they, uh, in all honesty, as to how this was going to be. But the reality is that it should be a fairly clear cut that if you take the responsibility from the landlord, then the agent should have taken that on board and said, I'll apply for the license. They didn't apply for the license. The tenant obviously made a complaint about it and tried to you know, put it on. So now the ruling has been as such that the um, agent is the one that has got to pay up the, the the difference and the landlord doesn't and it's 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 quite quite sad that it happens but these are the sort of things paul that then unfortunately give the industry a a, a bad name because people think well i don't want to do that because i don't want to be held responsible so it's always important to make sure that you read the contract understand exactly what you're you're committing to and make sure that you are not held responsible and if necessary take advice I mean, if you start taking advice, the chances are you're probably going to be there forever and probably the, the rental market will be missed and, and so forth because, you know, it, it could take some time for each person to get their opinion. But, you know, my advice would be to, to make sure you read the contract, make sure you are protected before you actually sign it. Um, and, um, and that way you've got the scenario covered um, and it won't have these issues, but uh, certainly, a, a, you know, a positive ruling um, by the High Court. Yeah, it's... Um... 
some interesting comments from professionals in the industry. I mean, obviously broadly agreeing with us as well. You know, rent to rent is causing significant consumer losses and the rent to renter can just walk away if the agreement fails. I've heard of many instances, says one, of deposits not being protected and being kept by the rent to renter at the end of the tenancy. Tenants being charged a fee for uh, taking the room in the first place and most commonly the rent to renter holding on to the rent and not passing it on to the landlord and then just disappearing. I've also heard of a bizarre business model where the rent-to-renter sources a suitable property and charges an investor a fee for the deal and also gets the investor to refer the property in return for a share of the rent-to-rent margin. This is very dangerous to the investor as they are paying for the refurb of a property they don't own and start out in a negative cash flow position which they may may never regain. That sounds pretty sharp practice to me. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's the case of, you know, I suppose an investor would look for a return on their investment. And if uh, a, a managing agent has got a rent to rent property, they'll turn around and think, well, actually, you know, it does need a refer, but maybe I'd have a, a share of this as opposed to not, and then get someone else to invest in it. But the reality is that they only have, if they do have it, they only have it for a maximum, possibly three years, up to five years, maybe as a, a rent to rent. And then, you know, they might come out of that relationship. So, if there is an investor that is investing, they need to invest wisely to make sure that at least their income is protected, even in that short time. And also perhaps get a copy of the rent to rent agreement from the from the agent that they're working with to make sure that that agreement is, is watertight and, and, and how long it is so that they can see if it's worth investing in and doing up a place and making sure that they get the return. Um, but yeah, these are all scenarios that unfortunately do happen. and. Um, um, you know, there's always going to be a reason why they, they come to the forefront. Um, but um, that's why we're here. It's interesting that, that uh, comments here about uh, rent to renters appear to emanate from some of these property training courses, these get rich quick in property where they're sold a dream of not needing any money to get involved in property, uh, which everyone knows is a fallacy. Uh, these property trainers are turning out hundreds of rent to renters every month who have not do not have a financial position to offer guaranteed rent and who are not uh, experienced enough uh, to run a compliant tenancy, thereby putting landlord and tenants at risk. Most of them are just naive people who bite off more than they can chew, but some of them see the easy money and get a taste for defrauding landlords and tenants. I know of one renter-renter deal sourcer who has £17,000 worth of unsatisfied CCJs in both his personal name and administratively in a delinquent company, which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of these uh, get rich quick um, training courses, all related to property, all telling them that they've gone into six, seven figure numbers in a matter of a year. And this is this can all happen and so forth. And, you know, yes, I suppose it could happen, but uh, it's not the reality. They do come back. It's a bit like those pyramid sellings, Paul, you know, sooner or later, the one, the last last person in is going to be the one that's going to lose out. And it's the same scenario here. You know, you're going to have someone who's going to actually lose out. It might be the investor, it might be um, uh, an agent, it might even be a landlord who's actually, you know, given the property out to someone and ended up owning a property that is now not fit for purpose because you know they haven't paid the rent. So all of these things do happen. So we always say, you know, um, take caution, uh, understand, and make sure that um, properties are uh, uh, inspected and. All sorts of things that are done in order to make sure that you know your property is being maintained in the right possible way. They know of one case where the landlord's name was put onto the ASTs for the sublet, but the rent to renter wanted to use the landlord's name for the court documents for rent arrears. 
a legitimate rent-to-rent arrangement is a management contract, not ASTs. And as the renter-renter guaranteed the rent, they are responsible for rental arrears and evictions, not the landlord. It seems that uh, this sector, this rent-to-rent sector, which is new on me, I didn't know anything about it until this weekend, to be perfectly honest with you. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because they're saying that it's going to have regulation fairly soon because I think they've realised that this is getting way beyond what it should be. And that's why I went to court and got the high court. And that's why this particular landmarking situation has had to happen, because obviously it was a, a scenario that people were getting away with and, and, and dealing with. And it's unfortunate. But like I said earlier on, it's those situations that actually give the industry a tarnished name um, um, when the other people are doing the thing quite, you know, up, uh, up to the degree of the law in the correct way. There's always going to be someone somewhere that thinks, OK, well, there's an opportunity. And rightly so, there are these management training companies that are obviously providing, you know, uh, routes to people to say, look, you can go and do this. And I, I, I hear of all the time people come and see us about these things and say, you know, I've got X, Y, Z. Currently, at the moment, there's a lot of um, companies that come along and say, we can give you a guaranteed rent, give us a block, give us this, give us that. And actually, when you start to un, unravel it all, peel the, uh, the onion skins back in the game, you find that ultimately it's probably the same thing, same scenario, and, and what you're going to get is probably not what you're going to get back um, in, in, in the long term. So, you know, uh, you have to act with caution to make sure that it is. I mean, the best best answer to all of these questions really is to stick to the, the rule, and the rule is the landlord be the agent and let it out instead of trying to be everything to everyone and trying to make the extra bits there, which, you know, they will. But landlords are equally at fault because they look for the easy road as well. And if they think that, you know, by just doing this means that I'm, I'm, I'm away from my headache, um, then later on it comes back to bite them, um, equally will, will suffer from it. So, you know, stick to, uh, my, my advice would be to stick to the basic rules of being, you know, the agent for the letting, as a letting agent for the, um, for the landlord. Um, but yes, these other, other schemes do exist. And you can see the appeal of it. So if you're a small-time landlord and you thought, oh, yeah, I'll get into the property game and get myself a couple of buy-to-lets and everything looks good and you can have a nice uh, residual income coming in every month, but then all of a sudden you get a problem tenant, the place gets trashed, uh, you get all kinds of issues with it, you know, the leaky taps that we talk about every week. Uh, suddenly, somebody else that take all that mither away from you uh, does sound appealing, doesn't it? It's, it's very attractive, that's what I said. I mean, you know, I, I fully get it, especially if you're a landlord that is a small landlord with a small portfolio of properties but you've invested because it's part of your future plans it's part of your pension retirement plan whatever the circumstances might be that you want to do and you think okay well actually you know what it's easy to do to do this i just you know my a i don't have a mortgage perhaps you don't have a mortgage on it they may have bought it cash so they look at it and say well actually i'm getting a really good return on my investment i'm not going to get the same return of my money sitting in the bank for argument's sake, so I might as well just took it on, on a couple of buy-to-lets and give it to someone to, all done with the right intentions, you know, no, no, no reason why they're not. But of course, what you can't bargain for is what happens in the journey. Um, and, mm. uh, and, and that's, that's what rent-to-rent -rent is, 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 is caused and highlighted, which is probably part of the reason why, you know, we haven't sort of discussed it, but fundamentally, uh, it's, it's just a, middleman practice that exists in, in the larger scheme. 
Let's change tack somewhat for our final story of uh, the day, and that is uh, uh, back onto mortgages, really, I suppose. Removing the age limit on interest-only mortgages could help many people struggling to get a foot on the property ladder, according to the National Association of Property Buyers. Uh, reports last week revealed that one bank had removed the age limit on its interest-only mortgages so that borrowers can take out loans for up to 40 years, however old they are. While this led to many commentators predicting a surge in people looking to benefit from forever mortgages, um, they've, they've said the organisation NAPB say that giving homeowners more options when it comes to what they do with their money and property is never a bad thing. Well, interesting. And it does feel a little bit like we're going back to the days of the, um, the, the uh, endowment mortgage somewhat. Well, the the thing there is, I mean, it's, it's actually, in my opinion, long overdue because the 25-year term that was always uh, the standard term um, has become harder to achieve for um, first-time buyers specifically because, you know, if you're looking at calculating a mortgage, and, and I, I have to say at this point that I'm not a mortgage advisor and I'm not giving advice, it's just a general opinion that I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to state here. But if you're going to calculate a mortgage based on um, all your costs, for example, let's say, you know, your household bills, your, your, your cost of your car, and etc., etc., all those things, and then you know, the lender says to you that you can't actually do uh, this mortgage because your outgoings are far in excess of whatever um, or your or your income and so subsequently that but if that time was expanded from 25 to maybe 40 years or 50 years the chances are that that affordability becomes a little bit more affordable for them and that gives them the chance to step on to do the uh, first run of the property ladder so um, and, and the way things are currently I would think that this is a really you know a welcome a situation uh, on an interest only basis or on a repayment basis it doesn't really matter uh, as long as it gives them a chance to step on the first run of the property ladder i think that's the that's the key um and and people are of course we know people are living uh, for much longer periods uh, the way of life is much much different and we've gone through all sorts of changes over the last three, four years, let alone the last 10, 15 years, you know, just since the pandemic, the whole way of, of living has changed. Um, and so therefore, people would want the opportunity to have a mortgage perhaps over longer if you're younger. It might be that, you know, the younger age people are allowed to have the longer period so that it gives them that chance. It might be that the older people might be only getting a 25 year, but then they may have equity from another sale that they already have. They might be already in the property market. So horses for courses, I would think is probably the right way. They were saying that older owners often feel particularly property rich and cash poor. And the recent rises in home values, of course, has done nothing to dissuade that in any way. Uh, and it's brought the fact that they've got all this equity in the property into sharper focus. In the right circumstances, owners might wish to mortgage to help a loved one on the property ladder, for example, the bank of mum and dad, or carry out expensive repairs or extensions or improvements on the property. Or they might just want to go on a dream holiday, for example. But there is a concern, they say, that in the wider market, that money extracted will often be used to invest in buy-to-lets 
or help an offspring to buy, uh, further inflating the prices of property, of course. It seems like property can only ever increase in value and a generation has never seen anything but this situation. But injecting more and more liquidity into property may just make any future correction just a bit more painful. It is interesting, isn't it, that actually the money could be used for for maybe, you know, where a problem with a buy-to-let or something or just over overstretching effectively. Yeah, I think that there's going to be a lot of scenarios one could look at, but the reality of it is that, uh, I mean, it, it's not a losing situation for banks either, Paul. I mean, you can imagine having a 40-year interest only, so you're whacking the interest for 40 years as opposed to 25. You know, they're not on a losing wicket, they're on a winning wicket. If you look at the statistics we brought in, um, you know, some weeks back when you brought in and, uh, and suggested that, you know, for the last, what, 50 years, I think the reverse gear may have only happened five times. It's not a bad risk factor when you think from an investment that if you had a 40-year, 50-year mortgage and in that period you might have gone back five, five, five times but found that it's actually gone up you know, way more than what you've actually gone back in. So it's a good investment and, and you know, we are in the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is a place where people like to own and buy. That's the ultimate wish and the dream for everybody that wants to, to have their own home rather than rent, it, rent, they would like to buy it. And I think you know, longer period of mortgages is, is good news if that can come, especially in the current climate. Uh, it's a bit like the 100% mortgages, you know, they will come back because that's the only thing that will actually kickstart the property market again and give the opportunity for the first time buyers um, to be able to get onto the first run of the property ladder. The figures are quite staggering, actually. Last year, a record £6.2 billion was borrowed through equity release. More than 93,000 homeowners aged over 55 used it as a way to release money from their property without having to move. And when you look at it like that, I mean, yeah, you're going to probably pay a significant fee to get the money out of there. But then you look at the cost of moving. Well, yes, no, I've, I've, yeah, I've had that discussion many a times now, especially recently, about the cost of moving and why, you know, so especially with downsizers. So somebody says to me, I've got a big property, I want to downsize, um, and then I want to, you know, go and buy X, Y, Z. Um, the reality is that they could probably pay a fee and actually release the equity um, and have the money to enjoy, or they could actually release that money and, you know, buy another property, um, perhaps, and continue to maintain or rent the one that they've got so that it brings in a further income. There's a lot of scenarios, and I think people have got to sort of take that on board. And, and, and you know, your your investment, your property is your best investment you're going to make. So sometimes it's very important to understand. But the cost of moving is astronomical as well. And that obviously includes, um, you know, stamp duty, agency fees, etc. So they're all monies that have got to go out. Um, um, and then you've got to, you know, take that out, take that off the bottom line. So it is important, especially if you are, um, you know, property rich, um, you know, equity rich and, and, and cash poor, you might want to release that, that money, but it might be that it, it does make sense for you to release it um, and use it. But the thing about using it is using it wisely, otherwise it's probably best stuck in the property. It sounds like you're saying really that, you know, moving should be your last resort, really. Look at every option before, you, unless of course you have to move for a job or something or relocation or whatever. But, you know, if you've got the choices, then moving is one of the last things on the list. Certainly at a time of life that I think um, makes, makes the difference, it's very important. Um, uh, I've had many discussions where, um, you know, 
people say, okay, I'm going to do. I suppose that w what I'm trying to say here really is that if you come to a retirement age, um, there are many things that you must take into consideration. And I've found in all the years that I've been in this, that come to retirement age, people do want to sell out, move out, and they move out to um, an area that they don't know. Um, they think that they want to go to the coast and enjoy the seaside and all that kind of other stuff. But there's a whole bunch of things that they need to take into consideration. I've also had when people have done that and rung me back two, three, four, five months later and said, we made a mistake, you know, um, and therefore we want to go back or we now need to move back closer to our children. Something has happened mm -hmm. with the family, the structure, and it means that we need the support of the family and we are now 200 miles away and that can't happen. So there's a lot of things that uh, I always suggest that people should just take stock and decide before they do. Not that I don't want them to sell because then I might as well be out of business and just open a consultancy. But the reality of it is that you try and give sound and good advice in order for them to make the right informed decision that somebody could do. But uh, yeah, I don't want them not to sell because then I, I, I'd just be here chatting to you lot and um, <laughs> nothing else. And on that note, I think we'll uh, finish there for this week. Thank you, as always, Joe, for your wise words. Thank you for watching Property Matters. We'll be back this time next week. <laughs>